0: look around at what this extractive model has done to the world. What can I say? Sorrow is too weak a word. I mean, one should feel rage, you know, at the ways in which this extractive model has just depleted our earth.
1: I'm Tanya Kersen, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today, on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. What are the places that have shaped who you are? Does the ocean speak to you, or the rivers? What stories do the mountains tell? These are some of the questions that came up for me as I read Amitav Ghosh's extraordinary new book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis a book that combines geopolitics, ecology, and philosophy to explore our relationship with the natural world. Ghosh was born in Calcutta and grew up in India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, and is now based in Brooklyn. He's the author of numerous works of fiction and nonfiction, including The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and The Unthinkable. His most recent book, The Nutmeg's Curse, opens with the Dutch Empire's brutal war in the Banda Islands, a small archipelago that's part of what is now Indonesia, to establish a monopoly on the nutmeg trade in the 17th century. From there, he takes us halfway around the world and back again, weaving together stories of colonial violence, human resilience, and non-human agency. I highly recommend the book, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. This was such a riveting and eye-opening book, and I'm so pleased that Amitav Ghosh is here to talk about it with me today. Amitav, welcome to Real Food Reads.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Tanya.
1: Can you tell us how the nutmeg, this humble spice that we probably don't think about very much in the West, except around this time of year, perhaps, when we're making things like like eggnog, um, First, how did it come to be the focus of so much brutality? And second, how did it assert itself as the protagonist of this book?
0: The nutmeg may seem like something very humble today because it's been humbled by its ubiquity almost. It's so cheap. But uh, the nutmeg actually, and spices in general, were the original commodities in the sort of early spice trade uh, pepper was the single largest component, and pepper came mainly from India. But uh, nutmegs and cloves uh, were the most expensive commodities, and both of them came from these archipelagos, uh, now known as maluku, you know, or Moluccas. So in the Middle Ages, uh, in Europe, for example, nutmegs uh, were incredibly expensive. Uh, just a handful of nutmegs could buy you a house or or a ship, and it was because it was so valuable that uh, the early navigators all went looking for spices. Uh, you know, this was true of Vasco da Gama, it was true of Christopher Columbus, and all those early navigators. And in fact, uh, the Portuguese soon after they arrived in the Indian Ocean uh, went straight to the Moluccas uh, and straight to. Uh, Ternate, which is where cloves were mainly found and then to uh, to the Banda Islands, which are actually incredibly remote, even today. I mean, getting to the Banda Islands is very difficult but there they went, off they went to the Banda Islands and after them followed the Spanish and then, uh, then followed the Dutch and the Dutch became dominant uh, globally uh, in the 17th century And uh, one of their first aims was to seize control of the trade in cloves and nutmeg. So in 1621, the Dutch governor general of the East Indies, a man, called Jan Peterson Kuhn, uh, took a fleet to the Banda Islands and basically killed everyone. They killed several thousand. They enslaved several thousand. Several thousand just starved to death. I mean, there were only 15,000 people on the island. And basically, they were exterminated. So, you know, what interests me about this? Of course, I mean, the, the human story is itself such a sad and a terrible story, you know, because the Bandanese were a prosperous people. They were rich. People went, went to the Banda Islands from everywhere, uh, from China, from India, from Africa. People went uh, just to get these, uh, get these nuts and to get mace, which is the outer covering of the, um, of the nut. But from being a blessing, the nutmeg ultimately became a terrible curse.
1: At one point you say in the book, the land did not exist solely to produce nutmeg and mace. It was not land with a small L, it was land with a capital L. And on the face of it, this is such a, an obvious statement that the land of the Banda Islands, it, you know, or, or land anywhere doesn't just exist to produce one thing or even to produce, period. Land is is home for humans and and for our non-human relatives. Um, but I think this gets at the idea of, um, you know, the world as a resource. Can you say more about the consequences of viewing the land and, and nature in this way?
0: Well, the idea of land with a capital L, uh, you know, is taken from uh, Dr. Max Leboiron, uh, who is a Native American uh, scientist. Um, and he makes this argument that, you know, for Native Americans, uh, land, and of course many Native American philosophers have made this ar- ar- argument, uh, that land uh, was for them... You know, it was sacred, uh, it was deeply imbued with meaning, and land was also attached uh, to patterns of storytelling. You know, uh, uh, in Native American tradition, uh, history is told always in relation to the land. And as opposed to that, uh, you see when uh, when the Europeans arrive, the land of America is essentially meaningless to them. So to give that land meaning... Uh, they import uh, uh, their own uh, terminologies, their own nomenclature. So, for example, I'm now sitting in New York. York has a certain meaning, but New York derives its meaning for the people who settled here from the fact that it points towards York, that it points towards England. And that pattern, uh, you know... uh, Uh, sort of uh, replicated itself across the Americas, across Australia, across every part of the world where Europeans settled. What this means is that it completely changes your relationship with that land. In Hawaii, for example, right now, uh, there's a huge movement. uh, uh, You know, scientists want to build uh, yet another observatory on a sacred mountain and indigenous peoples are resisting it. You know, because for them, that mountain has just as much meaning as a cathedral does for uh, for English people. You know, so for them, for the settler, uh, for the conqueror, that land exists purely to be exploited, you know, to be extracted from. I mean, at this moment, American industrial agriculture just abuses the land. You know, what else can you say? It's just abusing the land. And the land is, you know, in in fact... Uh, collapsing under the strain. I mean, just think of this: that uh, for how many years now, uh, several decades, American farmers have just been pumping up fossil water from the Ogallala Aquifer. You know, they just treated this uh, this fossil water as though it were it was yet another resource, just to be taken, to be used, to be extracted, and to be spent. And now the o- Ogallala a- uh, Aquifer is near collapse. Uh, It's almost empty, you know. And once it does uh, run out, just think of what what that's going to do to the Great Plains. The same thing is happening in India, you know. The Upper Ganga Aquifer uh, in India feeds like 300 million people and it's almost exhausted, you know. I mean, so when you look around at, uh, you know, what this extractive model has done to the world, you know, you can't even... What can I say? Sorrow is too weak a word. I mean, one should feel rage, you know, at the ways in which this extractive model has just depleted our earth. Truly. And that model begins, you know, in places like the Banda Islands. Because after they'd killed off all the Bandanese, their idea was that they would turn these islands into a kind of nutmeg-producing factory.
1: Yeah, in fact, you make a compelling case that Nutmeg production in the Banda's in the 17th century is an early expression if not one of the earliest of industrial agriculture of what we today call industrial agriculture and racial capitalism. Can you talk a little bit more about how you know how why it matters that we understand this lineage to our present-day food and farming systems?
0: it's very important to understand this because, you know, the Dutch East India Company was one of the earliest proto-capitalist organizations. It was one of the earliest joint stock companies. It it invented many of the forms uh, of finance and commerce that that we associate with capitalism. Uh, So the first thing they did uh, was to divide up the land and give it to white planters and then uh, the East India Company decided that they would provide them with slaves. So they, over centuries, they kept giving them slaves, you know, slaves from, most of whom were actually from uh, South Asia. And this is again, uh, one, of, uh, one of those models of extractivism because, of course, extractivism begins with extracting labor from human beings. It's something which uh, I think uh, uh, Cedric uh, Robinson quite rightly called uh, racial capitalism. And to a significant de- degree, racial capitalisms uh, completely exist uh, to this day. And it exists most of all uh, in agriculture. So, so many kinds of agriculture in the U.S. today uh, depend uh, on racialized workforces. It's also absolutely true of uh, Europe. Uh, in Italy now, uh, native-born Italians, uh, they work as supervisors on fields sometimes. Uh, but you'll rarely find uh, a worker who's out there actually sweating, picking tomatoes or anything, uh, who's uh, who's a native-born Italian. In effect, you know, what happens is that uh, some kind of stigma attaches itself when some kind of work becomes identified uh, with migrant workers of another race, of another uh, ethnicity. I was, uh, you know, I visited uh, <coughs> uh, the University of uh, Indiana in Bloomington some years ago. And this university was uh, actually founded as an agricultural school, and it's uh, still largely an agricultural school. And I remember in a class of about 30 kids, I asked them how many of them were from farming backgrounds. And I would say like 80% of the class put up their hands. And then I asked them how many of you are going to go back uh, to work on your family's farms. You know, literally none, absolutely none put up their hands. (laughs) They all want to go off to the cities, you know.
1: Do you think that that has a lot to do with the, the stories that modernity tells about farming and about the land?
0: Absolutely, it does. Uh, you know, when was the last time you saw um, a sitcom about farming, <laughs> you know, uh, or a sitcom which even had farmers in it? Uh, I think it must be the Beverly Hillbillies that I mean, uh, kind say. of <laughs> represented as you know represented as like uh, schmucks were out there. Uh, I mean, what are the sitcoms that you see? I mean, what are the sitcoms that these kids in uh, in Bloomington had grown up watching? Uh, they're like Friends. They all conceived the idea that life is boring if you're not in New York or San Francisco or Chicago or something, you know. And that's absolutely to do with the stories that people tell about farming and about uh, uh, living off the land. On the other hand, one must also uh, one must also acknowledge that there is a movement today of young people going back to the land and trying to grow food uh, organically and you know just learning from the land. And I think that is an encouraging sign. Yes,
1: absolutely. And I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with a, a sense of awareness of, um, to some extent, the, you know, how we've been sold a, a bill of goods about modernity and, and urban modernity and the sense of perhaps, you know, this, this search for meaning. <laughs> I think that that originates from.
0: That's absolutely true. I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've never been a farmer, but I do have done some gardening. And I must say, there's such a sublime pleasure in eating something that you've grown yourself, you know, without using, you know, fossil fuel derived um, fertilizers or pesticides or anything like that, for example. In my house in India, I had uh, spices of various kinds, uh, especially, uh, especially pepper, and I can tell you that my pepper tastes nothing like the industrial pepper that uh, you probably use, you know, because my pepper is sort of fresh. It hasn't been stored for a long time. And it has these floral notes. You know, it's just wonderful.
1: In your book somewhere, I forget who mentions it, the idea of a, of a spice garden. And <laughs> I just love that idea. But, you know,
0: spices are so de- undervalued and uh, literally devalued. Because yes. you know, look at the famous Italian dish, a cacio e pepe, you know? It's a very simple dish with cheese and pepper. And if you go to any sort of contemporary aspiring Italian chef, they'll talk to you about the noodles, the water that the noodles were boiled in, they'll talk to you about how the noodles were handmade sure. in their own house, where the uh, you know, where the wheat came from, all of that they'll tell you. They'll tell you all about the artisanal cheese they're using. But when it comes to the pepper, no, they, ju- they don't have any idea where their pepper comes from. They don't even have any idea about the various varieties of pepper that exist. But essentially what happened is that in the 19th century, from the 19th century onwards, spices came to be devalued. Spices which had once been uh, hugely valued and expensive. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, rich Europeans used enormous amounts of spices in their food. But from the 19th century onwards, that stopped. And one of the reasons was that spices went from being an exotic uh, commodity from faraway places, it went to being something that was produced by poor black and brown people. So spices came to be literally sort of uh, exiled uh, from uh, the European diet. But there was another reason for that. Uh, You know, uh, spices, uh, you know, there was this whole sort of... uh, Obsession uh, in Europe in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries about what they called self abuse, and uh, spices were thought to stimulate that kind of thing. So uh, they, uh, you know, so spices became associated with all kinds of bad things. You know, so
1: when you say self abuse, are you being is that an, a sexual innuendo? Uh,
0: yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it was thought to lead to uh, yes, onanism as they called it in those days, and. This terror of onanism played a huge part uh, in the evolution of the modern diet. You know, I mean, the the founders of Kellogg's, for example, were obsessed with onanism, so they created this cereal as a sort of uh, therapeutic (laughs) cereal. Look it up; you'll see. It's it's uh, it's easy
1: yes I, I do recall having heard this somewhere it's funny because there's a, there was this meme on Instagram that I saw that was said something to the effect of you know white white people waged all these wars around the world for spices so why don't you use them <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's such an interesting point around um, you know, the actually the sort of banalization of tropical commodities. So, you know, I think of, you know, the banana, which is the most consumed fruit in the United States, you know, or or how calling something vanilla is a way of calling something commonplace or, or boring when when the vanilla plant is this Exquisite orchid grown in Mesoamerica and and Madagascar and in Indonesia. Uh,
0: the vanilla plant is a complete enigma. Uh, you know, um, <clears throat> I tried to grow vanilla in my uh, in my house in uh, Goa, but uh, you know, uh, the vanilla plant uh, in Mesoamerica it's fertilized by by a particular insect. You know. And that insect doesn't exist in, say, Madagascar and elsewhere. So w- w- when you grow it outside of that particular ecosystem, it has to be fertilized. Uh, and the process is very complex. And the and the guy who actually invented the process of fertilization was a young black slave, you know. Uh, of course, he never gets credit for it, you know. Uh, similarly you know uh, uh, the transplantation of nutmeg was actually uh, accomplished by uh, a, a slave in fact in this uh, in this case it, he was a Bengali slave but of course all these innovations are are always credited to uh, to white men
1: right yeah and I mean this is something we talk about a lot too it's like uh, you know and I think you, you talk about in your book is sort of what gets credited, what gets legitimized as science or as a technology yes. um, and what doesn't.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I write about that at some length in my book, uh, you know, because it is, it is really something so interesting that, uh, for example, especially in, in let's say, botany, Uh, Europeans went off uh, all around the world and uh, started naming things, and yet they wouldn't have been able to do this without the help of indigenous peoples, and often uh, with the help of women, uh, because women were the herbalists, and they knew what to do with plants.
1: I cannot tell you how disappointed I was (laughs) to read the section in your book around some of the the fascist origins um of ecology and particularly Ernst Haeckel. And of course, uh, you know, it, it all makes sense. I interviewed a couple of years ago Dina Gillio Whitaker.
0: Yeah, what really?
1: Uh, yes, who's who's just uh you know fantastic and you know she writes at length about um you know the the whites how white supremacists and settler colonialist worldviews sort of mm. suffuse then environmental movement
0: oh yes it's 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 omnipresent and that's continuing to this day i mean as we speak uh, indigenous peoples in kenya and india are being evicted from their uh, from their uh, from their inherited lands you know uh, under the pretext of environmentalism you know as if they were the people who destroyed the environment and not miners and city people You know, uh, that kind of environmentalism has a long Mm -hmm. history of being uh,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: sponsored uh, by uh, big green organizations like the World Wildlife Mm -hmm. Fund. And, uh, you know, often what the WWF funds uh, is uh, these projects where they remove indigenous people from places like the Nagorangoro Crater. So they move Mm -hmm. those people out. And what do they bring in? They bring in uh, the tourism industry. Which caters to city people and often, um, often to foreigners. Right. You know, so what you actually see there is a form of ethnic cleansing. You know, a form of ethnic cleansing which benefits, uh, you know, the hospitality industry and industries like that. I mean, it's it's just criminal, really.
1: Yes, it is. Absolutely. That's the right word. I've written a little bit about this, um, you know, not as extensively as you have, but in the case of of Honduras. um, And that, you know, that actually brings me to another something else I want to talk to you about, which is militarism. The concept of terraforming that you use or in talking about settler colonialism, you know, basically er erasing meaning of a place and annihilating its people and and importing new meanings and importing new people to that place and enslaved people. Um, You know, there's this important role of the the technologies of war and militarism in promoting the expansion of industrial agriculture and plantation agriculture. Um, But it seems like often when we talk about food and we talk about food systems and you know, the carbon footprint, for example, of, of, of certain crops. Um, we don't often, at least in the U.S., talk about um, the, the violence and the, the military violence associated with that.
0: You know, it's probably the case that the Pentagon is the single largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, institutional emitter, you know. And yet these emissions are have, have rarely talked about they're excluded from uh, climate negotiations. And it's not just true of the Pentagon, it's true of military establishments around the world. Uh, war is the single most uh, environmentally damaging activity uh, that humans indulge in, you know. And yet, those environmental impacts are very rarely talked about, you know. And again, they very rarely are taken into account uh, when, when we talk about. Uh, uh, you know, wider impacts. So if you think of the notion of the uh, carbon footprint, it's usually reduced to an an individual's uh, expenditure on, let's say, cars or travel, all of that. But of course, uh, every individual is also paying taxes and those taxes also go uh, towards, uh, a very large part of those taxes go uh, to the Pentagon. So every individual does have uh, uh, some role. Uh, in these military emissions, we don't actually know how much uh, the world's militaries are uh, are responsible for uh, in terms of emissions.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we as Real Food Media, we work a lot at this in this space. That's you know, sort of the intersection between food and climate, and find it very, very difficult to combat this narrative that, um, you know, the way to address climate change is for individuals to purchase different kinds of food, more climate-friendly foods. (laughs) And it almost seems like a, you know, a conspiracy to get us to sort of busy our minds with choosing.
0: It is a conspiracy. It's now been demonstrated that it actually was a conspiracy. Uh, uh, British Petroleum uh, spent uh, uh, enormous amounts of money uh, promoting this idea of the individual carbon footprint, you know, trying to remove the blame from institutional emitters to individuals.
1: So to conclude our conversation, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by a vitalist politics and why it's needed and, and you know, maybe what is the role of storytelling in this type of politics?
0: Well, I suppose the idea that I'm trying to get uh, get at is how do we restore meaning to these things which have become meaningless? I mean, like, like the land, like rivers, uh, like mountains, like glaciers, and indeed things like the nutmeg, for example. Uh, and that is happening slowly. You know, we do see that, uh, uh, say, for example... The No-DAPL movement was very much founded on these ideas of the sacredness of the land and of our rivers and so on. And it was, in many ways, the most effective uh, movement uh, of resistance against fossil fuels uh, to date. And it was led by indigenous peoples. It was led especially by indigenous women. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that. You're talking about the movement at, at Standing Rock. At Standing Rock, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we see increasingly around the world uh, there's uh, there's a legal movement uh, to granting rights of nature. In New Zealand the river has been given personhood. Uh, in uh, in Iceland there have been funerals for glaciers. So in some way I think we are beginning to recognize that the land is not dead. That it does have um, you know agency. It does have its own agential properties. And I think... Um, I think it's very important uh, that these be incorporated into the sorts of stories we tell. uh, And only in that way, I think, can we come to fully accept uh, uh, these ideas. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support our work and access premium content and bonus episodes on Patreon.